hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Welcome back to uh, Hampson with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. I am here today with the wonderful Stephen from News Who. Say hello, Stephen. Hello, Stephen. <laughs> oh, you got it out of the way. Well done. Yeah. Uh, okay. This is, a, have to ask you this, time. this is a momentous commentary today because uh, the pair of us have put some work into what we're about to talk about. Have we not? We, we have. Over the last few weeks or so, we've been talking about which story we could do next and how we could do it. Uh, so we've chosen Castrovelva. And Joe, what have we done that's different, perhaps, to, to other commentaries with this one? So normally, the, 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 a little bit behind the scenes here, the, the normal amount of prep that goes into a handsome blunt pen knife is putting in the DVD and pressing play. Um, but the <laughs> what we've done this time is um, we've both got a copy of Castrovalva, the target novel by Christopher H. Goodmead. And we both pre-read it and both selected a passage from the target novel for each of the episodes that we're going to talk about. Why are we doing that, Stephen? Well, I think what we're trying to do is to demonstrate how different the novelizations can be from televised stories. And I actually approached um, Castro Alvarez with many other Doctor Who stories initially through the target novelization. So my conception of what the stories are was very much mediated through the target novelization form. Um, and it's interesting just in terms of how um, much you gain and also perhaps losing certain respects um, by doing that. Um, but I think what will probably become evident as we go through the next four episodes together is just the joy uh, and the bits they get coloured in and shaded in by the target novelisation and you can otherwise get in the televised story. I mean, I feel that I owe you a massive thank you because I've never read Castor Hour before. Um, mm. And the, the the idea, so I listened to Peter Davison reading it. I read the book, mm -hmm. but I really felt yep. as if I, I was studying this book like uh, academically almost. But that didn't, that didn't take away from the enjoyment of it. Not at all. In fact, um, I think this will probably be one of my favourites after this because I think this is a stunningly written book. For what is what is it? 118 pages. Um, yeah. What is it? The new adventures say too broad and too complex for the small screen, or something like that. <laughs> yes. But that's not the case with Castrovalva because it did make it to the small screen. But I think whilst the TV production and we're both big fans of that. Um, oh, yeah. has huge charms, a, a terrific production, location work, music, great acting, um, very memorable dialogue. Um, mm. But in prose, I, I felt the characters, and especially, and Bidney is like a concept man, isn't he? He's a high concept man. Mm. His concepts yeah. really come alive in prose. Um, yeah, so, and, and this is your thing. Targets are your thing. This is your in. So I'm saying thank you to you. <laughs> well, thanks for agreeing to it. And I agreed, like, Castrell was one of my top 10 uh, target novelizations just for the quality with which it's written. Just beautiful. If any of our yeah, listeners haven't uh, had a chance as yet to read it or haven't read it for a long time, pick it up. You really will be, um, I think, thrilled and delighted by what you might find. How, um, okay, we've got about a minute and a half. How did you come to, how old were you when you first read this? I was probably 10 or so, I would say. 10, gosh. There's some yeah. mind-expanding ideas for a 10-year-old in this book, isn't there? 
Yeah, I think so. And I was I was the type of kid who was probably, you know, quite switched on enough to sort of understand that there's ideas in here that I don't quite understand, but, you know, just kept plugging away. And it's been obviously a period of some decades even, but, um, you know, that those ideas sort of take root and, and flower in the mind over that time. And it now means um, a lot more, I guess, than it did at the time. But that was my, my sort of first path at Castrobalbar. Um, it was it was enough to get me absolutely fascinated by the story in a similar way to Legopolis, that there was something here that was bigger than I could initially understand and that just warranted my my continued attention. And I think in terms of, I mean, we'll talk about this when we go in, in terms of the TV story, what I love about this, and I'm a massive advocate for Castro Valva, not many people are, I think you and I are fairly no. unique. <laughs> um, I love that it's very sedate and that it, emph- it emphasizes on character and ideas. And it's not like, you know, you want a, a monster story with, you know, his, go and watch The Visitation, you know, that's dreary. Sorry, yeah. I, know, I know you quite like that. Um, but this is, this is, <laughs> this is like thinking Doctor Who. It's like, it's like conceptual Doctor mm. Who, you know? It's, it's got a bit of um, yep. substance about it. Well. Yeah, definitely. On that note, shall we skip in? Okay, let's do it. I am excited. Let's go. I will count us into the episode and that fabulous pre-credit sequence in five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Now, the funny thing about the novelization is that this sequence actually isn't part of it. The uh, the recap that we get, the cold open. Uh, with Tom, uh, Tom's doctor lying broken on the ground and the, the shadow of the, the Faroff Project Tower isn't actually part of the novelization at all. We uh, sort of skip straight to the bit where, um, straight after the, the opening credits, um, we see the, the new TARDIS team rushing back to, to the TARDIS or trying to before being accosted by the guards. So the first line is, he's changing, said Adric. The mm. doctor's regenerating. So we skip all over that, <laughs> straight to the point. <laughs> But one guess, thing, you know, that, then... the one thing that really stood out to me, okay, in the first uh, sort of five minutes of material in prose, was uh, Chris Rage Bidley was writing that as if he had a hundred security extras, and it was taking place in this <laughs> vast sort of James Bond location. It feels, <laughs> and Tegan literally, she she slams on the brakes of that ambulance. And like screeches the tired, and it's like it's proper action, you know. Whereas what you get on screen is a little more humble than that. <laughs> exactly, and this is maybe one of the great advantages of coming to a story through a target, or maybe disadvantage in the sense that you imagine a James Bond esque, uh, you know, action sequence that, that could never possibly be realised on a 1981 BBC budget. But that's okay. Like I still feel like there's there's charm in the. Um, televised version just as much as there is with excitement and, and adventure in the, in the written version. In, in particular, that fabulous 80s music that kicks in when they go off in the ambulance. Oh, it's terrific. Yeah, one of the one of the highlights of the 80s for me, definitely the this Castrovel incidental music. I can't think of all of, is it Paddy Kingsland? Yeah, he did some some really terrific ones. But you know, like we were talking a little bit before uh, we skipped into the episode, uh, into the recording, 
about how obviously the uh, Adric Teague and Anissa they've known each other for a few hours when this life-changing event hits the doctor I mm. quite like that because I, I quite like the fact that he's changed and they've come together and they all have to find their way together yeah, that's true. Although one of the things that this target does, along with a, a few others, and, and I'm thinking of Black Orchid in particular, is um, you know, provide some some background and some some characterization and, and backstory that actually isn't there. Um, so you know, I think one of the things that you find always in the in the difference between the novelization and the televised story is that it kind of um, operates on this idea of the memory cheats. Like you've got, <laughs> you've got this idea of what the story actually is. As according to the target, that was never the case in the, in the, in the television. But um, you know, a slight difference is always going to happen when you want adapting to different media. But you're right; what, you get a sense um, that Adric Tegan and Nissa know more about the Doctor and the TARDIS and about Gallifrey and regeneration. Yeah. Maybe perhaps more critically about each other than they actually do um, you know, on screen. And it's really odd because they've, like you say, they've they've just um, met the fourth Doctor and each other, um, and it's 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 clear that they they don't know know each other very well, but I feel like in some regards that is um, something that season nineteen suffers for that there isn't that sort of um, established history between them to fall back on because the characterization beyond this point doesn't doesn't flesh out um, as you would hope and expect over the course of that season. Well, so, I found with um, this, if you watch them in sequence, obviously this was recorded fourth, wasn't it? It was four to Doomsday, Kinder, yeah. The Visitation, Castro Valva. So at this point, they've got some pretty good chemistry going on and they're quite relaxed with each other as actors. Then you go and watch four That's to true. Doomsday, which is the first thing they shot together. Mm. And it's like they've never met before. It's all very strange. Yeah, actually, you're right. That would definitely play into it. But I mean, just in terms of how I approached it, um, because I didn't get to see many of these stories and only came across them in, in target form and in a totally random manner as well. Like I, I was left to assume that the gap that the gaps that I had missed were actually filled in by the television show when they actually absolutely weren't. And, and maybe that's sort of part of that that sense of hang on, are they old friends or new friends that I right. sort of came uh, came away with? I um, um I, so just, this was one of the. This was an early Doctor Who for me. I remember seeing this VHS quite early mm -hmm. into when I when I found Doctor Who, and I've I've watched it a million million times. Like as you know from the last couple of weeks of voice notes, I know this story inside out and back to front. <laughs> I can quote it all. But when I read the book, for that. genuinely, when I read the book, I felt as if I was I'm not, I was obviously reading the same plot, but it was a very very different version of the same story. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's a bit of a, it sort of proves a bit of a truism, um, which is, you know, that through prose, you can better develop and even fabricate that characterization and history that, that isn't actually there. And that's one of the great advantages of the target novelization. The other thing that happens, obviously, through, the, um, through that um, is that you can, when it's best um, done anyway, draw more obvious attention to the, um, the themes and the motifs that recur and, and the parallelism, parallelisms that sort of are inserted by the writer uh, in, in the uh, the novelization that Pat's aren't in the um, uh, in the televised story. So there's foreshadowing, for instance, that happens a number of times, and I've got a few examples of my sleep that I'll refer to. Okay. Um, and and uh, some little bits and pieces that are inserted that aren't in the television story, televised story at all, but really add like a, a beautiful layer and, and uh, oh. sort of sense of 
um, deeper meaning perhaps. But, There's uh, certainly one in this episode which we were talking about, and I hope you're going to bring that up. But you know, what's, yeah. the, what, what's the best approach? I don't know what's the best approach. Reading the book first and then watching it, or watching it and then reading the book, because I think whichever approach you take, that's a very different story you're, you're seeing each time. Like it's, it's a different journey you're taking. Well, yes, it is, but maybe we're sort of um, operating towards the um, you know, same conclusion from opposite ends in the sense that you know you you saw Castrovalva first on uh, on television and or on video and then read the novelization for me it was, it was the other way around. But we both still have a very deep appreciation and fondness yeah. for it that's really sort of layered by the fact that we have been able to appreciate it through different two different media or two different forms. Um, Maybe ultimately the end doesn't really matter. Why do people? The point is that, like reading those targets, do add just such further, um, you know, meaning and layers to, yeah. to the stories that we're probably very familiar with through um, televised stories. I mean, before this, uh, very quickly off topic, I read the Doomsday Weapon, which is Mac Holt's uh, oh, target. Oh gosh! And that's a Great that, that is a completely different story from Colony in Space much more graphic, much more cynical, darker, absolutely gripping. Um, yeah. But but a very different interpretation of the same story. And, and this is, I think you sort of alluded to this earlier, Joe, you mentioned essentially that it's the same uh, plot, but told in two different ways. And then that sort of illustrates to me the difference between story and plot. Story is how you tell the the story. Right. Um, and, and plot is really, you know, what happens in the story. and you know, in something like Doomsday Weapon, obviously a few things get changed, but it's, you know, beats a beat, largely the same plot. You know, this happens and that happens, and this happens in Gold's Master and the Doctor, blah, 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 uh, IMC. But the, the telling of that story in the Mac yeah. Hulk version is oh, so my. different. There's, one, there's one chapter where on you TV. are inside Dense Head, and it's talking about an IMC mm. life with an IMC wife and an IMC child. It's the most horrific yeah. depiction of the future I've ever, ever listened to. I'm telling you. Yeah. Yeah. But Hulk, Hulk does that a lot, doesn't he? We see that in the Cave Monsters, where there's the um, uh, chapter that's written from the point of view of uh, the Silurian. There's a chapter in Green Death that he novelizes um, that's from, told from the point of view of, of the Maggot. Um, oh, is there? Of course, if, if you, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And in the Dinosaur Invasion, again, just, just sort of if you want to know the difference between story and plot and how those two things sort of play out across those two media i bet the dinosaurs are amazing so in prose. i bet they're terrific oh of course <laughs> yeah. Yeah, do you know absolutely. what with with castro valva i think what bidmead's doing sorry christopher h bidmead he does like his full name mm -hmm. um is he's taking i think maybe he thinks this is this is well executed enough but probably it's not getting to all of the subtleties and the depths of what he's writing. And this has given him a chance to explore all of that. I think that's true, yeah. Yeah. And it's just limitations and the possibilities perhaps that are um, inherent in the different forms, right? Uh, the prose is always going to allow you for that, for that interiority, that depth, that, that ex explication that you're not going to get on, on television. Well, there's one thing. So we've had the master turn up in this already, um, very briefly at mm. the beginning. One thing that really struck me in the book was how menacing the master came across. And oh, in Peter Davidson's reading of the book, 
here's Anthony Ainley <laughs> is freaking uncanny. But they also mm-hmm. like they over his dialogue they do this like echoey effect and play this yeah. really creepy music. And uh, you know I love Anthony Ainley and I think he's a lot of fun as the master. But this book shows you how he might have been done a little less pantomimic and giggly and silly. Completely, absolutely. Yes, yeah, the menace of this of the Ainley Master in, in novelizations is something that I had, and it's a very different picture to the one that I eventually saw in the Gothic mm-hmm. Encounter of Alfred, and, and certainly beyond in the eighty stories. We just got up to the bit, by the way, around the IIF index file and, and the, the you know the importance of that. Um, this is um, something that Big um, um, does really well in the novelization, where you know we have that sort of discourse around recursion. Um, but in the novelization, we have inserted this, uh, this sort of tangent that doesn't appear in, in the televised story around what the, the term of um, ancestor and what that means. Uh, and, and this asks the question of Tegan and Tegan says, well, that's simple. Your ancestor is anybody who is your father, your mother, your father's father, your father's mother, or your mother's mother. Or, or... And as she spoke, she seemed to see in her mind's eye a long progression of Mrs. Ancestors. The line now completely wiped out as a result of the master's last evil campaign. Wow. Like that. That reference back to Mrs. Lost, you know, yeah. the, the sort of thing that happens uh, in Triton and then later in, in, in Legopolis is something that we don't see very much of at all. And, and you know, it could be anyone that, um, you know, the master's um, uh, taken over in terms of, you know, the Trinus's body in terms of the way that, that Mrs. sort of reacts to it on screen. But here you just sort of get that, that sort of implicit underlining of uh, the master sort of walking around in this elite skeleton that is once was Nissa's father, which is horrific. One of my biggest criticisms of this period of the show is that Nissa is a character ripe for exploring the dramatic consequences of what's happening to her. But you know what? Again, there's a bit in, uh, I think it is episode two, technically, where she goes, um, oh, that face, I hate it. And that's it. That's all she says. But in the book, there's a whole passage about the master taking over her father, and it just goes into and into the complexities of what she's feeling. Absolutely, they would do that now, it's, Stephen. It's, it's, in in not... the new series, they would do that now. They would they would absolutely play that uh, out. Of course they would. Yeah, and I would have a showdown between them, which is always something that I guess I was looking forward to that we never got. This bit interesting, um, by the way, on the, on, the, on the screen at the moment. I think it's the first emergence of the Fifth Doctor's character. It's sort of underscored by Paddy Kingsley's music uh, that sort of speaks to me of a, of a kind of optimism and like maybe the potential of new beginnings. Um, and it's uh, reflected in the, in the novelization again by Bidme, uh, where he picks up the cricket bat and he drew it out and weight of the willow in his hand brought back sunlit memories that smelled of new mown grass. He held the cricket bat up to his eye and looked along the prison. A thorough rub down flinty the oil and it would be as good as ever. He had an idea that there was a bottle in the locker in the old pavilion. He pushed open the door near the hat stand, and a deep nostalgia came over him at the sight of the white sweaters on a line of brass hooks, that single dusty pad, and the cricket ball on the changing room bench. Isn't that lovely? Just it's sort of like um, pointing to the, uh, um, the sort of centrality of cricket as a metaphor for the fifth doctor's character. Just really lovely. Honestly, and I, I, I seem to recall um, in in the last week at one point. Um, now, I don't think you meant this negatively at all, but you described Bidmead's prose as occasionally florid. No, I didn't mean that negatively at all. I think um, I think that's actually an advantage, in fact. But I actually think, um, certainly of the targets that I've read, 
his is probably the most and this is very pretentious to say but poetic like there's yeah. some, there's poetry in his writing um Mm. I have a passage to read out in a second because we're just about to head there, uh, which um, <laughs> essentially um, it shows you the gulf between what can be realised on screen, which is essentially like a pink set, which is it does its job, which is the zero room, mm. but what can be achieved mm. um, in prose. Uh, I'm going to start it now because we're just yeah. about to head there. Uh, Tegan had never seen anything like it bef uh, in her life before. Although later, when she thought about that moment of entering through the big double doors, she realised that it wasn't particularly the look of the Zero Room that so impressed her. Certainly the place was big, vast in fact, in its pinkish grey emptiness bathed somehow in the warm light reminiscent of a late summer afternoon. The walls were indented with familiar TARDIS roundels that you saw everywhere else on the ship, but here they were huge, forming high curved shelves big enough to climb onto. The remarkable thing was the sensation of utter peace that descended on all three of them the moment they were inside. The doctor came to his senses quite suddenly. It's gorgeous. Like that, that Yeah. The feeling that it's like this vast sort of cathedral sized you know, building inside the TARDIS. And, but also how uh, nurturing even um, some the TARDIS can be, and certainly the, the, the zero room is sort of made out to be a haven. Um, it's, there's a sort of sense sense of sanctuary about about the room and about the TARDIS, which I think you know as Doctor Who fans we, we very much appreciate. We're nerds, you know. We want to see these wondrous rooms that are hidden deep in the corridor heart of the TARDIS, and we want to you know explore these different areas. So to see them like this, but also to sort of read that description and imagine in your mind what could look yeah. like on a budget, well, yeah, just wonderful. But like, um, I feel like Fiona Cumming deserves some credit because I think oh, yeah. with very little, I reckon she probably had a corridor or two with very little mm. set. She manages to convince that there is like a vast labyrinth inside that TARDIS. Yeah. And that's just clever camera yeah, work and, 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 you know, being a creative director. Absolutely. I mean, that, 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 is a, that, is, that is a fair size set, but it's not a vast cathedral, was it? Well, no, I was just kind of just looking at it there, and sort of like those critical eyes, and it is not, you know, the cathedral that it's sort of painted out to be, but it, it's a sort of big enough uh, set when shot in the way that um, uh, Fiona Cumming shoots it to sort of suggest that scale and size. Like in the arty space where they use mirrors and, yeah, and camera angles yeah, yeah. to really make it look huge when in fact we know it wasn't. Um, and when they I use CSO in a minute to, to they use CSO to flip him over to suggest it's got like magic like the gravity what he says even the gravity is mm. only local that's what he says yeah. <laughs> which is <a> terrific <laughs> so line. um yeah oh, it's marvelous but what okay i have a question for you do you think it's an issue that this is tardis bound like like the the basically the plot of castrovalva doesn't start until about two-thirds of the way through episode two Look, I think if you were to rewrite this and or, or to write it for a modern audience, maybe what you would find is like the first five to seven minutes is everything that we see in the TARDIS condensed and, and sort of made really punchy. Um, so it, we're kind of looking at it through modern eyes. But the other thing that you have to remember is that this goes out uh, in two batches of two over two weeks, right? So episode one and then episode two the following day. Then there's a, a six-day break before we come back to three and four. Yeah. And I think what happens... Um, in season 19 is that we sort of have these splits 
in, in the stories where the first two episodes, which you know follow on from one another you know, within 24 hours, essentially tell one story and the second half of the story is told the week following. Earthshock does that as well to a degree. And it's not as neat as a, okay, at the end of part two, the, the action and the location and the story shifts, um, but it's sort of there or thereabouts. So I feel like there's um, a new doctor that you need to introduce, two new companions you have to introduce. You have to um, essentially sort of provide um, you know, some kind of runaround or some sort of like dramatic uh, framework in which you, you do that. The TARDIS scenes are also something that speaks to fans as well. You know, I mentioned yeah. earlier that we're, we're nerds and we sort of geek out about these things. This, so I think it sort of makes sense to be like that our, the first two episodes are largely TARDIS bound. This is supposed to be like our safe haven, the TARDIS, isn't it? So the idea yeah. that, that, that the, I mean, it started in Logopolis, isn't it, with the master? in the cloister somewhere yeah. laughing his head off um and then he basically <laughs> turns he turns the whole of the tardis into one big trap zooming back yeah. to event one and about to be destroyed i yeah. don't have any and, issues and with this because i think i think there is a precedent for this you had the mind robber episode one which was all set in the tardis yeah edge of destruction, edge of destruction. yeah which was all set in the tardis um yeah. journey to the center of the tardis which let's not talk about that all set in let's the tardis talk about that, yeah. <clears throat> Okay, I'm going to say something facetious. Is, is similar in the sense that there's a sort of TARDIS peril around, you know, the, the infinite loop of, um, you know, TARDISes within TARDISes that we see in the first episode or two. But Bidme's on record as saying that the TARDIS is the most wonderful thing, and for him it was a sort of dramatic inspiration, mm. compared to someone like Andrew Carmel, who's like, no, no, the TARDIS is just there as a magic wardrobe through which people, you know, they well, he never so stops, though, does he? He never stops because in Legopolis, um, mm -hmm. like we've already said, he does a TARDIS from a TARDIS, and that's yeah, a really yeah. fun. In this, well. in this, he turns the TARDIS into a, into a big trap, and in Frontiers, he blows it up. Like he's always doing uh, fun absolutely. things with it. And I don't think either of them are wrong or right. I just think it's different ways of telling stories um, and different ways of telling Doctor Who's stories using the TARDIS. Oh, um, I think they could do more fun things with the TARDIS, you know, even in the new series. I, I think Bidme perhaps mm. has got the right approach. Oh, good grief. I, I think it's just, you know, horses for courses, really. And I, I look at something like The Doctor's Wife, which is an episode that I really enjoy, and I think it sort of does something new and interesting and is largely TARDIS-based. It's about the TARDIS, for heaven's sake. Um, and that works for me, whereas you, know, you mentioned before, Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS certainly doesn't. So it's how that's used rather yeah. than just the idea in and of itself. Like, I love the idea of Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS. And I genuinely thought, wow, this is going to be like creative, yeah. and epic. But basically, they did this just a load of corridors. <laughs> you know, but, but this is all they could do back in the 80s. Like, they couldn't do much more than this. And even yeah. then, they created the zero room, the pavilion. You know, they did the cloister room. They were doing cloister, what they could. Yeah. yeah. I think Janet Fielding's terrific in this. You know, and I, I do have some issues with her season nineteen performances, but I think in this story, she's yeah. just got it. Yeah, I, th I think so, which is why it makes it so jarring when you go to Fuller Doomsday and the characterisation is so off and doesn't return until essentially. Black Orchid. Do you remember that um, bizarre bit in Four to Doomsday where she's in the TARDIS console room and she has a complete meltdown? Yeah. And she's like, oh, like what is going on there? It's a bit odd, definitely. But she's much more the Tegan that we recognise, I think, in this one. Although Janet Fielding talks about, in every commentary in this season, 
all she talks about is her hairdo. Oh my god, <laughs> somebody has stapled a bird's a bird's nest to my head or something like that, you know. Okay, so so we we haven't actually talked about Pete Davidson at all or the fifth doctor. Not really. And this is this is a, a very gentle introduction for him, isn't it? Well, and I think that's fair because it's a, it's a gentler, kinder, softer doctor as well, which is a doctor that I want to believe in because kindness is not a weakness and, and a softer kind of doctor like Jodie, for instance, um, does need to be, um, you know, does need to be shown to, to be triumphant in the, in, in the end. What I really love about this characterization of the fifth doctor is um, it, it sort of comes at the end of, you know, um, a sort of classic era of Doctor Who, it's a brave new world and moving into the 1980s. Peter Davison is one of the biggest stars on television and there's yeah. a sense of optimism and potential about this new era, about new beginnings, um, which I think ultimately doesn't really translate to what we find. But in Castrovalda, we have that. We've yeah. got in, um, with Bidmead, I think, this sense of uh, uh, one of the recurring themes um, uh, that, he, that I feel like sort of comes through in Castrovalda is one of rebirth which is really interesting because after season 18, which is really uh, a, a season that talks, you know, really sort of um, about entropy and endings, I think had we got Christopher H. Bidmead scripted for season 19, that would have been a lovely sort of um, counterpoint to, um, to season 18, to have a season 19 that sort of really um, oh, moved into this. Stephen, I really... New beginning. I mean, I wouldn't want to lose Kinder. I wouldn't want to lose Earthshock. Um, I think that would have been in there, yeah. But... I would love to have seen one full season of Bidmead and Davison. Yeah, me too. Yeah, absolutely. 